0: Typically, when we do this many passages or verses 4 through 20, I would break it down. Today, I'm going to read through it its entirety, and then we'll go back and refer to some things. But just listen to this. Here we go, verse 4. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and was who was and is who was to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom priest to his God and father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on this island called Patmos on account of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore the things that you've seen. Those that are are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. John is writing to the seven churches that are in Asia Minor, which is in modern-day Turkey, we're going to begin to see this word seven used in the book of Revelation 54 times to be exact. Today we see seven churches, seven stars, seven lampstands, seven spirits here. We see all of these things beginning to play out. Now, when it comes to interpreting these numbers, we have to remember what we said last week, that Revelation is apocalyptic literature meaning we read it symbolically or figuratively first and then we move to the literal. Other scripture, we know that you start with literal and and then you move to the figurative or the symbolic, but we start here with symbolic language. And this is symbolic language, it's not literal. Yes, there are seven literal churches in these places that we've just seen. However, there were churches in other parts of Asia Minor, Colossia, Philippi, there's some other ones in there. So when he says the seven churches, what he means is the number seven is the number of completion, perfection. He's addressing all the churches, all the churches then and all the churches throughout human history, including us at Life Point Stewart's Creek today in 2021. This is the number of completion. He also mentions seven lampstands and seven stars. So, How do we interpret that? Well, we go to Scripture. What does Scripture say that it is? Look down in verse 20. It says that the lampstands are the seven churches, and the stars, the seven stars, are the seven angels from those churches, the pastors from those churches. So that's our understanding of how we use this figurative, literal, symbolic, and we process these things, okay? We need to understand those things. Now, there's a few more things in context that I want us to see before we get to the main thing, which is the revelation of Jesus. Let's make sure we're clear on that. The first thing I want you to see is when John says, he addresses them as brother and partner in tribulation. Brother first, this is that familial language that John wants to remind us that the Christians are a family. The church is the family of God. This is not just people that we go to church with or attend church with or go to one place a week. No, this is family right here. And if it doesn't feel like family to you, then I ask you, are you involved in a life group? You'll begin to feel like family once you're in a group and you're known by people and they're eating your house and you're feeding them and they're feeding you and taking care of you. That's family, right? So get in a life group, check a card, all those good things. But he also says that he is their partner in tribulation partner in tribulation that doesn't sound too fun does it I mean hey I'm your partner in tribulation nobody wants to be a part of that right when he says tribulation he's referring to Christian suffering Christian suffering is not the suffering because we disobey Jesus it's the suffering because we obey Jesus big difference there right you will suffer when you disobey Jesus, right? That's not what he's talking about. Suffering for the name of Christ. And we know that John is in tribulation because of Christ, because he told us in verse 9, because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Simply put, layman's terms, Domitian in Rome said, told him to shut up and stop preaching about Jesus. He said, I'm not listening to you. I will continue to advance the word of God and I will testify about Jesus. That's pretty wild when you think about John as a 90 year old man. 90, golden years, right? Cruise on into eternity. I've done the hard labor, right? Can't I just be? Can I just relax on my couch the rest of my life? Jesus, right? He was so committed and so saw Jesus as so precious in his life that he was willing to choose hardship. Over health and wealth. He was so willing to uh, face persecution at Patmos instead of the ease of Ephesus. This is crazy. And it wasn't just John, this was the way of the early church Christian. Listen to what Martin Luther King Jr. referred to that. He says, There was a time when the church was very powerful, in the time when the early Christians They rejoiced at being deemed worthy to suffer for what they believed. The Christians pressed on, for they considered themselves to be a colony of heaven, called to obey God rather than man. They were too God-intoxicated to be astronomically intimidated. That's good. It's really good. Now, in America, I I just still don't think we, we don't grasp this quite yet. As I said, we're not facing what they face, but it is on the way. Tribulation is the way for the Christian. Did he not tell us that he would send us out like sheep amongst the wolves? Does that sound safe to you? Doesn't sound safe to me. There's nothing safe about following a man that climbs up on a cross and dies and then says, do what I do. There's nothing safe about it. It is no pain, no gain, no cross, no crown, no tribulation, no treasure for Christians. It's the way it is. We don't follow a health and wealth savior. We follow a homeless and wounded Savior. Why would it be anything different for us? Why would we expect pampering and a life of ease for following Jesus Christ? We have to remember as these false prosperity, bogus, evil teachers infiltrate our society and bookstores and tell us, follow Jesus. He's got a wonderful plan for your life. Comfort, health, and wealth. Your life will be full of ease. You renounce all prosperity teaching. When you get a devotion and you're reading it and it's all about you, run the other way. If the focal point of your devotion is you, stop reading it because it will set you up for the day when the suffering comes. And then it's all of a sudden not going so good for you anymore. Tribulation is the way of Christ and is the way of suffering. Persecution, listen, it is painful. I'm not saying it's not painful. But I'm saying it is is purposeful in our life. It does a couple of things. It makes us more like Christ, the suffering Savior. But what it also will do as it did in the first century, would be to purify the church. you got to think when the first century Christian, when the threat of being fed to a lion, if you preach Jesus or you tell your friend about Jesus, if that's sitting there, I could be fed to a lion and I still share Jesus with my friend, no one's questioning my allegiance at that point, right? I don't really know about that guy. I mean, I'm not sure about that pot of oil over there. He's willing to go in. I don't really know if he's all the way in with Jesus. No, you know he's all the way in. The church was pure at this day, purified. And it purged the mushy middle from the church. It will do the same thing for us in the days ahead. When the suffering, when the tribulation begins to come for us for following Jesus, Those who are unwilling to lose friends, money, career, status, comfort, family, maybe their own life. For those that are not willing to lose the things on earth for the sake of Christ, they will fall away from Jesus. They will fall away from the church, proving that they never were truly in to begin with. But for those who know to live as Christ, to die is the game. That we are more than conquerors in Christ. That whatever we loosen our hands on earth will be given to us tenfold in heaven. For those, your faith will be strengthened. You will give evidence of your true faith. And you will be rewarded in heaven. Get ready, church. It's coming to us. All right? I want us to be ready now. I want us to be a people that are so Jesus intoxicated that we cannot be culturally intimidated. That's what I want for our church, uh, for me and for you. Let me show you something else that I parked on here and I saw. In verse 10, John said he was in the spirit on the Lord's day. Now, first thing I want you to see there is there is a Lord's day. There's a Lord's day. You know, some people pass it off as, no, we're under the new covenant. That, that Sabbath, Lord's Day stuff, that's Old, Old Testament, Old Covenant. This is the new covenant. It's the end of the Bible. Jesus has already come, and yet John is still worshiping in the Lord's Day. There is still a Lord's Day. Yes, Every day is the Lord's, as Paul said in Romans fourteen five. Yes, they're all his days, but there still is a Lord's day for the Christian. You know, in, in Genesis, the creation mandate, as God was establishing an order, he worked for six days, rested on the seventh, and then everything that was created, every person that was created, was to fall in line with that mandate, was to work hard on six days, rest on the seventh. Yes, that is Old Testament. New Testament, Jesus comes on the scene and flips the rest and the work mentality. Now, because Jesus Christ has worked on our behalf for our salvation, now this Sabbath is our rest. And from our rest, now we go work. This is the first day of the week for the Christian. We get our rest here today and go work in the future, right? The rest of our week. So there is a Lord's day. I want you to know that. And it would be wise for us all to order our lives around what God has ordered our lives around. To establish a day where we rest and we Sabbath together in this place. So if you're a workaholic, beware. Moms and dads, listen, beware. If you do not order your life to have a Lord's day, your life will be full of chaos. It won't go well for you. It will not. So I pray that you you shut down. You understand what it means to take a Sabbath. And for those that fall under the banner of it's my day, if it's the Lord's day, it's not your day. That means you can't do whatever you want to do and call it your own kind of thing. You understand? Like you can't worship at the First Mattress Church of Smyrna and stay home and just kind of chill out. Well, this is what I'm going to do. No, it's... Lord's Day, we are to be in the spirit with the people of God in here, worshiping, singing, teaching, and listening, and learning, and encouraging, and all the things that we talk about. So there is a Lord's Day, and I'm thankful to be here with you today on the Lord's Day. Now let's go. Now let's get into the meat of the main point. Because most of all, not only in Revelation, but 4 through 20, Jesus wants us to see Jesus, all right, that is the point. Verse one said, it is the revelation of Christ. So if we get lost up in the middle as I unpack these symbols and signs and white hair and fire, and listen, we'll lose Jesus, we'll miss Jesus altogether. So let's make sure we see Jesus. And the first thing I wanna show you is this, who he is. Point number one, who he is. Verse eight, he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come. We know that alpha is the first letter in the Greek alphabet, omega is the end. So here in this moment, when he says, I am the alpha, I am the omega, he's saying, I am the beginning and I am the end. I spoke and the world came into existence and I will speak at the very, very end and I'll put an end to all human history. The end of the world will be because I say it, because I am the alpha, I am the omega, I am. Am God. He's equating himself to God. Now, we're going to get into some more specific descriptions of who Jesus is here. Now, we know, we would say out of the gate, he's indescribable. Like, there's no words that you can truly use to describe how precious and the worthiness of Jesus Christ is. But, John does give us a glimpse here of some things. His first advent, he kind of came in incognito, right? In a manger, no, really, no one really knew. A few people knew that it was actually God in, in a manger, right? Not this time. This Jesus coming at his second advent, everyone will know who he is and it will be put on display for all to see. Now, before we see this portrait that John paints of Jesus, let me ask you to sit aside some, maybe some false ideas of what you think a portrait of Jesus looks like. This is not your grandmama's or the flea market portrait painting of Jesus Christ. <laughs> this is not blonde hair, blue eyed Jesus. This is not black Jesus, not Hispanic Jesus. It's not any other version of Jesus. This is a Jesus that will blow our minds if we truly see it. Let me paint a few pictures here. The first one he says this: the hairs on his head are like white wool, like snow. Now, this is an Old Testament reference to Daniel 7 when Daniel referred to God as the ancient of days. The white hair was symbolic for someone who was ageless, timeless. God, Jesus Christ here is the ancient of days. He has no age. He's always existed from beginning to end. The white hair also symbolizes infinite wisdom, white hair, infinite wisdom. Proverbs 16, 31 said, a white head is a crown of glory. A white head is a crown of glory. If that's true, should we fight the aging process when the gray and white hair should come to our heads? (laughs) I don't know. I don't know. You figure that one out. All right. Uh, The next thing we see. His eyes were like fire. His fiery eyes see everything. This is the point. It is these penetrating fiery eyes can see everything. They see everything through human history and they even see all of our web history. They see the he sees the depths of our human heart he sees past the facade of our facebook profiles he sees the real you and the real me you know the person that you're trying to hide from everyone else seeing for who you truly are you know what i mean like we all walk around like that let's just acknowledge that Like, you don't really want everyone to know the depths of your soul and what's going on up here, right? You want to cover that person up. You're not naked and unashamed. You don't want them to see you like that, right? Jesus sees into the very depth of our souls. And for the unbeliever, that is a very sobering thought, right? To know That as Tozer said, there's no escaping the penetrating gaze of God. That's a horrible thought if you don't know Jesus. But if you know Jesus, he sees all of you in you, every thought you've ever had, every desire of your heart. And he looks at you, he fully knows you and he fully loves you. (laughs) Like that's incredible because I know what's up in here. I know my thoughts. They're not good. But to know that God sees me and still loves me and loves you, that is a wonderful, wonderful treasure. You can't say that about anybody else on this earth. No horizontal relationship can make that. Even the best of marriages, you can't look at your spouse and say, fully know you, fully love you. No, you don't. <laughs> we really don't. But yet God does that. That is why he is more deserving of our love than any other human relationship on this earth. His eyes are like fire. His feet are like burnished bronze. They represent purity and power. A soldier would have bronzed feet representing, once again, purity, but also power because he was a warrior and heading into battle. Jesus Christ, his feet are burnished in bronze representing purity and And power because he is a warrior who's going to battle against all of his enemies. His voice is like a trumpet of rushing waters. John had been with Jesus. He spent three years of his life with him. Now, it had been 60 years since he had seen him. But three years, he knew what the voice of Jesus sounded like, the audible voice of Jesus. But this ain't it right here. This is different. It's a trumpet, loud, roaring waters. Have you ever been close to lightning striking somewhere? You know how small we feel in those moments? That was the voice of God. And it quaked John in his boot. This was different. Roaring, thunderous voice. From his mouth came a double-edged sword. Now, this is not a literal sword coming from his mouth. This is a representation, symbolic of the word of God. The word of God is the sword of God. Paul says that in Ephesians 4. So he's saying his word is authoritative. It is a powerful weapon against the enemy. He's worthy. The next section I want to show you is what he has done. Seeing who he is, now what he has done. Notice his, his garb. He has a white robe and a sash around his chest. Now, this is not Jesus uh, displaying his heavenly fashion. That's not what's going on here, all right? What this is, is this is a representation of the Old Testament where the great high priest who would offer the sacrifices the blood sacrifices to pay for the sins of the people. They would clothe themselves in white robes. They'd have a sash over their chest. And here in this moment, what Jesus is saying, I love you. I'm wearing a white robe and a sash across my chest. I am the great high priest. I'm entering into the holiest of holies and I'm offering a sacrifice which is me, it is my blood and I'm offering the last sacrifice. The office of priesthood is shut down. There will never be a drop of blood spilt on the earth again because my blood satisfied the wrath of God. That's how much he loved us. Think about God loving us. It's not sappy. It's not hallmark sentimental love. It's sacrificial love. It's a body given, a life given, and blood spilt. Listen to what Matthew Henry says about this with his being freed from our sins by his blood. He says, sins leave a stain upon the soul, a stain of guilt and of pollution. Nothing can wash out this stain but the blood of Christ. And instead of leaving us in our own filth, Christ was willing to shed his own blood To purchase and pardon the elect. Our sin and depravity render us unclean in the sight of God. And so we must be cleansed if we are to stand before him unafraid. On a physical level, it takes water to remove dirt from our bodies. On a spiritual level, it takes the blood of Christ to remove the stain from our souls. The perfect Spotless Lamb. Jesus also says that He has the keys to death and Hades. He conquered death, He would never die again. And all who trust in Christ, you have also conquered death. He holds the keys to Hades. Think about that for a moment. Oftentimes we have this wrong view of God's in heaven over here and Satan's over here dwelling in Hades. Satan's kind of got the keys and he kind of does his thing and God's over here. It's the wrong picture. Jesus is saying, I have the keys to death and Hades. Number one, says, I have the keys to death. I'll determine when people die, not COVID. I'll determine that when the life will end. But I I hold the keys to not only heaven, but I hold the keys to Hades. I'm sovereign over all things. He is this reigning, reigning king, and he is worthy. The last point here is what he is doing. We've seen who he is, what he's done. Now what is he doing today? What is Jesus doing in the world today? First thing he's doing, he's saving people all the time. How do we know that? He says that he is the firstborn of the dead. He was the first one who was born from the dead. He was resurrected, right? You only become the firstborn if there are others who are born again after him. So if you're in Christ today, you've been born again after death Death has no sting. His resurrection, you are now a partner in his resurrection. You will physically die, but you will also be resurrected as Christ was resurrected. Saving people. He is absolutely worthy. Now he's also, it says he's the ruler of kings on earth. So today, right hand of the Father, throne, ruling, reigning over the kings of the earth, the queens The monarchs, the supreme leaders, and the presidents. He is the ruler of all kings on the earth. In fact, not only ruling them, let's take it a step further. Look at Daniel 2.21. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. Do you know what we just read? we just seen a picture Jesus is not in heaven right now with his arms folded saying, what in the world is going on? I wanted this guy in the office. He's not demanding a recount of the votes, y'all. He's king. He sets them up, knocks them down, puts them in, takes them out. Now, we have to trust in that. We have to take some kind of solace and comfort in knowing that he's telling some grand redemptive story that we simply do not understand. That when whoever gets in that office, it's because God put him in there because he's the ruler of the kings on the earth. Now, that don't mean you have to like it, by the way. You have to trust it. But that don't mean it's going to be better. It means there's something else that God's writing that we simply do not understand. And we must trust in his sovereign good plan. He's the ruler, kings on earth. We are not in control. And the world is not out of control. God is on the throne. Now, I want to show you John's response. John's response. Remember, he hadn't seen Jesus in 60 years. He sees Jesus, and notice what he doesn't do. He doesn't come at him with a BFF handshake, a chest bump. Hey, man, I ain't seen you a lot, little bro hug. He sees him. He doesn't go and write a best-selling commentary on all of the end times and his personal interpretations of the symbols. It's not what he does. He drops to the ground as though dead. It literally... Rendered him unconscious because of the holiness of God. He's in the presence of God. Now, think about who John is for just a moment. This man has an incredible, pious profile that is unmatched by any person in this room. He's killing it. He's John the Beloved. Jesus trusted his own mom to the care of John. He's, he's one of the three, right? Right? If he's dropping to the ground as though dead, what does that mean for you and me? We would possibly think that we're doomed, right? But that's not, what it, that's not what happens. John is not only appropriately reacting to being in the presence of God, he's showing us how we are to respond to being in the presence of a holy God. He's saying, once you're brought really, really low, If you truly understand who Jesus is and who you are, the only proper response is you get your face in the ground. Unworthy. You're holy. I'm not. I'm scared to death of you, God, and what you will do. And only then, in that appropriate response, Jesus puts his hand down, in love and places it on us and says, fear not. Fear not. If you're in Christ Jesus today, fear not. If you're not, fear much. Because there is judgment that is going to come upon you when Jesus returns. This is the response appropriately of Jesus. Now, do something different. We'll close out a little different today. If you would, for a moment, put your Bibles away, notes, put those things kind of away. I love the fact that y'all do that, by the way. It's awesome. But sometimes we can get caught up in the academic and note-taking that we miss the weight and wonder of things. So I want to attempt to do that here for a moment so that we would feel and see Jesus the way that John sees Jesus, okay? So I'm going to read One passage that we skipped past, but it's so profound. I couldn't skip it. Had to put it in here. And it is in verse 7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds. And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so... Amen. There are four things that I want us to see and feel in this. Number one, he will come. Suddenly, bodily, literally. This is not figurative or or, or symbolic. He's coming. He's going to come. Behold, he's coming with the clouds. The same way that he ascended, he will descend we know that in the Old Testament, the clouds were the very presence of God. He will descend and the clouds will be the dust at the feet of the king. He will come. Behold. The second thing I want you to see is this. He will be seen by all is what we see here. Every single eye will Look up to see Jesus Christ on this day. It doesn't matter what you're doing, your eyes are coming up. It doesn't matter if you're scrolling through your phone, checking out your TikTok, Instagram, no matter if you're watching CNN on TV, your computer doing a little bit of work, gazing at yourself in the mirror. It doesn't matter if you're marveling at your awesome life. My kids are amazing. My house is awesome. Did you check out my new car? It doesn't matter what you're looking on. In this moment, every single eye goes up to see Jesus Christ. And then in that moment, I want you to notice something. Never again will these eyes go back down and gaze on what we were watching and looking at before. It all goes away. Your new iPhone, the death of all selfies, gone. Everything, everything with moth and rust destroys everything else. No one else goes back to what they were doing. You don't go back to work on Monday after we see this Jesus. Every eye will see this Jesus. He will come, he will be seen by all, and he will cause great sorrow It says that those of tribes will wail at the sight of Jesus Christ. That tells us a couple of things. There's no such thing as universal salvation, meaning everybody gets in. If that were the case, there would be no wailing. There's going to be wailing. Who's going to be wailing on that day? We think murderers. Child traffickers, crime committers, lawbreakers, those horrible people, they're going to wail that day. You know who's going to wail that day? Those who've chosen the better portion in this life. Those who do what is right in their own eyes. Those who, when they see Jesus Christ on this day, they know they resisted this Jesus They know that they've rejected him being Lord over their life. They have done things according to their own desires and followed their own hearts. And I want you to see what happens this day when they look upon him and they're wailing and wailing. He, in in an instant, he wakens up their sleepy memories to every single crime they ever committed against a holy God. I'm talking about all of them. Minds are flooded with every single treason against the holy God. A fountain of tears follow. Tears that will never be wiped away. Running forever and ever and ever with no consolation. And he will say to them, depart from me, I never knew you. But for the righteous... For those who trust in Christ, love him, they understand his grace, what do we say? That day he brings us strength because what are we going to say on that day as God's passing out judgment on people who've rejected him? What do we say? Even so, amen. We will be affirming the judgment of God on wicked people that day. Sounds a little bit unloving today, doesn't it? Oh, you're just rejoicing in the wailing of people? I don't understand all that. All I know is our eyes are gonna be so fixed on Jesus and what he's doing that we will say, even so, amen. So my question is this, if every eye will see him, everyone here in the room, you will see Jesus. If he returns before you die, it'll be like this. Or you'll meet him up in heaven. If every single eye is going to see Jesus, you can either look now, today, and live forever. Or you can die and wail forever. This is what the text says. If you trust in Christ today trust in his perfect life, his perfect death, his resurrection, that he paid for all of your sins and he's worthy for you to follow and call him Lord. He will take your wailing and he will turn it into a song of you singing, worthy is the lamb, from wailing to worthy. I wanna invite you in that moment today. Band's gonna come up. I know I went long today. I love y'all. Thank y'all for listening. We had a lot of stuff to do, but um, if you don't know for sure, about your relationship with Jesus. If you want to see Jesus today for the first time in your life, listen, that's a work of the Holy Spirit, not of me. If you are processing that, come find me, maybe Matt, someone else out the door on the way out. I want to talk to you about how you know life and life abundantly. If you are here and you're confident, you're like, this coming of Jesus doesn't scare me. It's great, I love it. Like, a, yes, Jesus put an end to this. If you know that, you've got to go tell people. You have got to go tell people about the Jesus that you've seen here today. Can't shut your mouth about it. It's too overwhelming. God has given his soldiers, the church, our marching orders, which is to go share the gospel, the Great Commission, to take this news, this picture of Jesus to your family, to your friends, parents, grandparents, brothers, sisters, your neighbors, coworkers, whoever. We have to go and tell people. And I do pray as I know that God holds Life Point Church as a lampstand in his hand that we are a light to a dark world and that he would move us to see Jesus the way that John saw Jesus. Let me pray for you. Father, you are so good and you are so worthy and we are so unworthy of your love and your grace and your mercy, but yet you, you gave it anyway. You gave us your son. And he is not only the one that we look to for salvation, he's the one that we look to today. Hope, security, promise, presence. God, I just continue to pray that we would look upon Jesus and we would see him and this world around us would come into focus. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Love you guys. Thanks again for listening.